Ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. I'm David French with Sarah Isger, and this is episode two of Nerd August. And this one is a real treat. This is a fascinating topic with a fascinating guest. Sarah, do you want to introduce Kevin Stroud? Well, I found it really funny because in our episode one of Nerd August, I mentioned the history of stirrups, and we had a few listeners calling me out that I had gotten this from a podcast called The History of English Podcast that is hosted by Kevin Stroud. And they are exactly right. It was kind of a little Easter egg of what was going to come for episode two, because we have Kevin Stroud here. Uh, This podcast is incredible. He's been doing it since 2012. There are 160 episodes. And David, he's a lawyer. So I thought we'd talk uh, a little, even though it's Nerd August, a little law, but more etymology, more history. Um, and so History of the English Podcast is the name. He has bonus episodes. He even has an audiobook on the history of the alphabet. I, I eat it all up. Like this is this is what I do in my car all the time. I like go take drives now intentionally. Um, so I was really looking forward to this episode. All righty. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. It's... I, it's weird because I just got out of my car and we were together. Uh, I mean, you didn't know you were there, but you were with me as you are in every car trip I take. And here you are. It's very exciting. Thank you. Well, that's how podcasting works. <laughs> so I'm told anyway. And you normally podcast alone, you said. Yeah, it's just me. Every every aspect of the podcast is just me. From the concept, the research, the writing, the editing, the Fixing the website, yeah, it's a, it, it's a lot. It's a lot. That's incredible. And you started this back in 2012, and you've been releasing about a pod a month. Yeah, it started off uh, a little more frequently than that. It was actually about every other week. And it, it, I started in 2012, so it's been a decade. But the truth is, I actually started about a year before that because I spent about a year researching the podcast, the first part of it anyway, before I ever actually prepared an episode. So once I started writing and recording the episodes, I had enough research kind of banked that I was able to maintain a a regular schedule for the first few years. And what's happened over time is I've kind of caught up to my research. So the pace of the podcast has slowed down a little bit. So now it's it's typically once a month. Well, and you're a lawyer by training, education, and career. That's true. Yes. It's been, uh, it's hard for me to believe, but it's been uh, almost 30 years that I've been practicing. I want to say, folks, since you can't see him, I can. He does not look like he's been practicing law for 30 years. (laughs) Um, So uh, generally, for our August nerd specials, we don't talk about the law, but I thought it would actually be kind of fun to do a little bit of linguistic law, English history, and that Maybe we should start in the Middle Ages with the dooms. What are the dooms, Kevin? Well, dooms, believe it or not, is the original English word for laws. And this may come as some surprise to a lot of your listeners, but the word law is not an English word, at least not originally. It actually comes from the Vikings. It's an old Norse word. 
And even a word like legal is not a native English word. It comes from Latin and French. And so to really get back to the original language of the law, we have to go back over a thousand years into the period of English that's called Old English and the period of England that's called the Anglo-Saxon period of England. And the Old English Anglo-Saxon word for laws was domus. And over time, that word evolves into the word dooms. And it actually is the source of the word doom today. If, if we feel, you know, doom and gloom, or, you know, if we think about doomsday, it comes from that same original word. And the, the connection has to do with the fact that the dooms were really just judgments rendered by the local assemblies. If uh, whenever they heard disputes among the townspeople, they would render their judgment. That was the domus. And so really, you know, we, we have to think about this period as being so far back in time that we don't really have written legal opinions like today. You know, it's just sort of an oral judgment. And that's really what it was, just a judgment. So when the, when the Norman French come along in 1066, they give English the word judgment and the word judgment day coming out of Christianity which the Anglo-Saxons translate as doomsday or domus day. And so that's where the connection you know, comes from doom in the sense of doom and gloom or the end of the world. Uh, it comes from that word judgment day or it comes from the, you know, the judgment day, which is translated into English as doomsday. But originally it was the dooms and it may seem a little bit far removed from the, the language of the law today. But if you think about the word deem, if you deem something to be good or bad, it's it's really the same root word. It's it's another old English word, but we that version of it has survived. But doom only survives in the sense of doom and gloom. What about deed? Well, deed is an old English word as well. Deed originally meant just a, a general deed, an action, you know, just you someone who does good deeds. But it later, and of course, we still use the word in that sense. It's not related to the word doom at all. But over time, it did become associated with property transactions. Because in the Anglo-Saxon and early Norman period of England, again, there were no written deeds in the sense that we have them today. It was more of a ritual where someone would you know, swear an oath and agree to transfer property or rights to property. So there was, a, there was the, the deed or the act of transferring property. And then later, that term gets applied to the written document, which we know today as a deed. Uh, another interesting aspect of that, this comes out of the Norman period, um, early deeds were often written down on parchment when they did start to be written down. And they would be written down twice so that each party could keep a version of it. And they would cut the parchment into two parts, but they would do it with kind of a zigzag line so that the two parties would each have a copy that they could put together to make sure it matched, like a puzzle, you know, so that no one has a forgery. We make sure they match. Well, those zigzag lines kind of look like teeth. And if you think about the Latin word, dentists for teeth, which we have in dentist and denture, that's where we get the word indenture from, which huh. we still use as a deed or a legal document. Wow. 
And, and David, by the way, he covers that one of the earliest, you'll, uh, Kevin, have the full history of this. One of the earliest pieces of uh, writing that we have in English is the domas of one of those Middle English kings. Um, and there's, you know, not that many laws. I was wondering if you could just tell us like what some of those early laws looked like if you lived in, was that Northumbria or Kent? It's Kent. It's the laws of Ethelbert of Kent. And this that document is considered to be the first document to be composed in the English language. Now, what survives today is a later copy that was made near the end of the Old English, early Middle English period. So it was about five centuries later. But we know, given when that particular king lived, he was one of the earliest Anglo-Saxon kings. And just given the timing of it, puts it around the year 600 AD or Common Era. So that would make it the oldest document in the English language. Now, of course, we're talking Old English here. So this isn't the language we speak today. Uh, it's, it's the original version of it, but it's evolved so much over time, you would not be able, unless you had studied Old English, you would not be able to, to read it or recognize it uh, as English. But um, yeah, it's put together because it comes out, out of the church, really. Uh, the Pope sends um, his missionary to England to convert the Germanic pagan Anglo-Saxons to Christianity, uh, and that particular missionary is named Augustine, and he arrives in Kent, he converts the king, Athelbert, and then he, they realize that this new church has to be protected, and so it was really prepared, appears to have been prepared by the clerics who came with Augustine, because it's written in the Latin alphabet. The Anglo-Saxons didn't, you know, they had an old runic Germanic alphabet that they used for inscriptions, but they didn't really write long you know, documents in it. So this, this legal code is written in the, the Roman Latin alphabet that we still use today, basically. And uh, it, it's based on the Germanic concept of what was called the Wergild, which meant man payment. And the way it worked is if there was a conflict between two people, for example, if one person killed another person, the dispute could be resolved by having the, the person who committed the murder or that person's family make a payment to the victim's family. And that was how disputes were often resolved. And so this is how the original Anglo-Saxon Old English Legal Code is written. There's a list of crimes and then the payment that has to be made for the crime. And it begins with the church. That's the biggest fees that are paid are if you do damage to the property of the church, which again is more evidence that that Augustine had the code prepared. But then it goes into <laughs> other things. You know, if you are in a fight and you know you break a front teeth, a front tooth, it's worth a certain amount. But if you break a, a, a tooth, a molar, it's worth a different amount. I mean, that's how specific it is based on the particular damage that was done. And, uh, but it's very thorough. And it is the, again, it is the oldest known document prepared in English. So that's interesting. So it's monetary damages because your impression of, you know, a period like that is basically everything is the death penalty. Kill a man and you lose your life. Steal his chicken and you lose your life. Uh, but this is this sounds completely different from what one would expect. Well, there was a lot of capital punishment, but you have to remember you're coming out of a more of a, a tribal tradition. 
And if you weren't careful, these things turned into blood feuds. And you you basically had chaos with different, you know, family groups uh, constantly murdering the other family groups. And so this tradition is not not limited to England. It really is is more it's common throughout the Germanic tribes of northern Europe. And it was just a way of regulating that to provide uh, kind of an off-ramp so that these things didn't spiral out of control. And so if someone is is committing in that kind of type of uh, offense, could be murder, could be an assault, could be other type of crime, there was a way to make a payment to resolve it. Uh, it didn't, by the way, you weren't necessarily required to accept the payment. You could refuse it and and go to a blood feud if you wanted to, but there was a, at least some type of mechanism for preventing everything from turning into chaos, basically. So uh, one question I have as you're as you're talking about things that are seventh century, eighth century, moving into the Norman Conquest, how confident are we in these early languages? Like how what kind of body of written work are we dealing with here? How much? And when do we start to get, when do we start to become sort of more confident? When do we start to have much more uh, surviving written records? And that's one thing that I'm always quite intrigued by, especially, you know, the more you dive into antiquity, we speak with a lot of confidence about how language was. What's the basis of the confidence? Most of the confidence comes from the written record. So the more writings we have, documents that we can review, the more confident and I say we. I should qualify everything here by saying I'm not a linguist. Um, I'm, you know, I'm an I'm an attorney. I'm a podcaster. But I've spent over a decade now, you know, reading and researching this, and it's something that I take very seriously. So, you know, but I, I do want to put that little caveat on it. But yeah, it's based on the written record, and that's one of the good things about Old English is that we have a written record going back to the seventh century. Most other Germanic languages don't have that record for another three or four centuries after that, some later than that. So we can take English pretty far back, about 1,500 years. And of course, when you're dealing with Latin, you can go all the way back you know, into the classical Latin period and other languages even further than that. You know, I should note that most European languages and several of the major languages of South Asia, including northern India, are all related. Uh, historical linguists have studied it, and they're confident that there was an original proto-language that was spoken four or 5,000 years ago called Proto-Indo-European. But that's not a written language. That has to be reconstructed based on modern languages and the way sounds have changed. And, you know, that's, that's uh, a little bit more speculative. But for Old English, we do have a written record, again, pretty much from the beginning. As far as the way it was pronounced, that's a trickier question. And ultimately, I suppose you can say no one can say for certain But we have to keep in mind, as I noted, when the Roman uh, Latin alphabet was applied to English, it was just applied wholesale. They took the the, letters of the Roman alphabet and the sounds that each letter represented, and they applied it to English. And so English spelling was much more phonetic really until about 500 years ago. And that's true throughout the Old English period, throughout the Middle English period, that includes Geoffrey Chaucer. Up until around the time of Shakespeare, linguists are pretty confident that 
the spelling of words generally represented the way that they were pronounced. And there are some exceptions. What's interesting also is you can actually trace local accents in England. And if you know much about England, you'll know that there's tremendous diversity in accents. Almost from one town to the next, the accent changes. And based on where these documents were written, they can see consistent features. The way one scribe would have pronounced a word is consistent with another if it comes from that area. But then you you go, you know, 100 miles away and the scribes are spelling those words differently with different vowels. So it's it. there is some conjecture involved, but there's a lot of consistency when you look, ac- excuse me, when you look across the written record. And so that helps linguists, um, you know, with with certain amount of confidence that they can reconstruct the way Old English was pronounced. And there's wild sound shifts that happen as well, and they happen at different parts of the European continent, different from England maybe. And so one of the things that's fascinating to me that you'll bounce back and forth is um, we will have a word that started out the same, but because a sound shift happened in English before it happened in French, we basically have two versions of the same word that are pronounced differently, one pre-Norman conquest that we had sort of kept through English, and then we're going to get a different version of it with a different sound shift after 1066. Those get really fun. And that's one of the fascinating things about English, because English is sometimes described as a, as a mutt language. It, it combines you know elements from so many different languages, and that really makes it fascinating. It's hard to put any specific numbers on it, but Somewhere around 30% of the English vocabulary comes directly from Latin, and about 30% comes directly from French. So if you account for that, that means well over half of the English vocabulary is, you know, comes from Latin or French. English is not a Romance language, though. It's a Germanic language. So you have underneath that, that kind of baseline of common Germanic words. I always like to say that little children speak Old English. Of course, that's not really true, but the Old English words that survived the past thousand years are the very simple common words that children tend to learn first. So basic numbers, you know, one through ten, hundred thousand, your basic body parts, you know, head, eye, nose, teeth, that kind of thing. Uh, family relations, close family relations, mother, father, brother, sister, these are the simple words that have survived. And when we speak in very simple, plain terms, and this gets back into legal English, um, when we try as lawyers to speak in simple words, we tend to be we tend to use older words from Old English. And I should also mention Old Norse. I mentioned the word law comes from Old Norse because England was in, invaded by Vikings in the 8th and ninth and 10th centuries. So we have actually a fair number of Norse words mixed in with Old English. But those are our simple, basic words. And then we have, after 1066, we have the Norman Conquest. We have this layer of French words that come in. And then we have, of course, on top of that, Latin words, especially in legal legalese. So we, are, we have these two different registers to pull from, and yeah, there's some commonality. You mentioned, uh, I mentioned like mother and father. You know, father, we also borrowed that word from Latin and French as the word, in, in Latin, the word is pater. So we have the word paternal and paternalistic and patriarchy, other senses of the word father. But if you think about it, 
Those are more elevated words. When we speak of paternalistic legislation, you know, we it's kind of different from your father, which is much more just, you know, plain and simple. And, uh, and that occurs in legalese too, because if we skip forward a little bit, you know, English law, it began with the very simple, the dooms, domus, those simple words. Then the Norman French arrive in 1066, William the Conqueror, Battle of Hastings. For the next three centuries, really, the language of law and government was Latin and French. It begins as Latin and then in, in the law turns into French about in the 1200s. So now, by the time you get into the 1200s, every legal proceeding in England is conducted in French. It's not in English. And when the law is written down, it's written down in Latin. And this becomes a problem because most of the people, you know, they don't speak Latin or French. The common people speak English. And this is a problem because when their cases go to court, to you know, trial, they don't know what's going on. And in, in the late 1300s, there's a law passed called the Statute of Pleading, where Parliament says, enough with French, you got to speak English in court from now on. But it was ignored. By and large, we know from the written evidence that lawyers who tend to be very conservative in the language they use, they didn't want to abandon those familiar French and Latin terms that they had used for several centuries. But eventually, by the time we get to the 1400s, those plain, simple English words start to come back in again, and, and, and lawyers are using English in court again. But now they have a problem. Which word do you use? You've got an established Latin or French word with an established legal meaning that you can rely on. But now everyone's speaking English in court again. If you go with a plain, simple English word, it might not convey the same legal meaning. So the solution was to put them together, to pair them up. And it's really amazing, as you look across the language of the law, how often we combine a simple, plain Old English or Old Norse word with a French word or a Latin word. Think about law and order. Law from Old Norse, order from French. I'll give you several of these because they're fun. Breaking and entering. Breaking yeah. is Old English, entering French. Um, to acknowledge and confess. If you've ever seen a legal document, <laughs> you'll see that wording. Fit and proper. Fit is Old English, proper French. Um, to deem and consider to hide and conceal, give and grant in a deed. Uh, what about aid and abet? Aid, aid and abet are, are both French and Latin words. But that gets into another issue I'll talk about also because it has to do with alliteration. But uh, that's another feature of legalese. But a couple more of these examples. Yeah. Uh, in a deed, sale and transfer of property, um, land and tenements to make and enter into an agreement. Um, <laughs> that one's so true. That one's ridiculous. You have a free and clear title. And in a, I used to do a lot of estate planning. So in my deeds would contain language like, I give, devise, and bequeath all of my right title and interest to this certain piece of property to someone. Well, give, devise, and bequeath. Give is Old Norse. Devise is Old English. Bequeath is French. Right, title, and interest. Right is Old English. Title and interest is French. So this becomes just a standard feature of legalese where 
early modern lawyers in the early modern period, 1500s, 1600s into 1700s, they're trying to account for these two different languages, these two different legal traditions, and the way that the, the law, the words were used in those traditions. And their solution was just to combine them. And it creates a, a bit of a nightmare today for people trying to read legal documents. But it's that way for a reason. Another example, by the way, I, since I did a lot of wills, last will and testament. Your last will is Old English, testament is Latin. So you mentioned something about alliteration. I'm very interested in that. So this is another feature of modern legalese. It's maybe not as obvious, but it's at least arguable that it goes back to Old English. So let's go back in time again to the Anglo-Saxon period. you know, poetry. Are we going to do Beowulf? Let's do Beowulf. Well, yes. It's it's interesting because I was going to touch on Old English poetry, uh, yes, yes. and that's the most famous poem of Old English. Old English poetry is different from most modern poetry, and let's say poetry after the Norman Conquest, in that it relied on alliteration. So the French really bring the idea of rhyming poetry, where we we repeat sounds at the ends of words. But the traditional Germanic poetry was the opposite. It repeated sounds at the beginning of words. So it was, you know, it alliterated. And so a, a poem like Beowulf, you know, it does that. What way, gardena, engeter, dogum. There's just certain repeating sounds. The what way at the beginning, um, you know, gerder, dogum at the end is, is repeating. It's just the way Old English poetry worked. Well... In those early assemblies, those early legal assemblies, one of the ways in which legal disputes were settled or resolved is the person bringing a claim against someone else would have to swear an oath that they were, you know, the person did whatever the crime was. And these, these oaths were kind of standard language, but they were, they were uh, often worded in a way that they kind of had that same type of alliteration. And the thing was, there was a certain magical aspect to the oath. Because if the person swearing the oath messed up, if they stuttered or stammered or made a mistake, then the oath was deemed to be invalid because it was deemed that God had interfered and said the person wasn't telling the truth. So you not only had to repeat the oath um, as written or as recited traditionally, but you had to do it perfectly when you did it. Well, then once that person swore an oath, the other person would have to swear in response. They would answaru which is where we get the word answer from. The legal system works the same way today. You file a complaint, the other party files an answer, right? Well, this is what happened in Old English. They would answaru, they would swear in response, and they would have their own um, you know, oath that they would have to swear, and they'd have to do it perfectly. But though that type of oath, again, had that type of alliteration. In fact, anticipating that we would talk about it, I actually have an example of that oath written down I'm going to try to read it. I'm, this old English is, without practicing, it can be tricky. But it says, by the way, the person that they're swearing against is named Edward. I gave him the name Edward because it's an, it's an old English name. Uh, it reads, Anthony Trichten, H. M. and Schilti, Ather ye dare ye dictus, Athera Tichtlan, Demi Ticht. Basically means, by the Lord, I am guiltless, both in deed and counsel of the charge which Edward accuses me. But there's alliteration in there. Ye data ye dictus. Atthara tichtlan. There's certain repeating sounds. Well, this became another feature of, um, of English, of legal, legal English. If we think about a modern oath, the most 
well-known part of most modern oaths occurs when the person swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, that's a modern English legal phrase, but it uses the same type of alliteration. And it's not just the repeating of the word truth. Listen closely to the repeating T's and T-H sounds. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's It runs throughout that whole phrase. And it's, again, it's, it's very similar to, to the way the old English oath worked with repeating certain sounds. It made it easier to memorize, just like with the poets who had to repeat Beowulf, those long poems. They remembered it through alliteration. Well, the people swearing those oaths had to, that helped them remember it, you know, because it used the same type of alliteration. But it also has impacted other aspects of legalese. You mentioned aid and abet. I'll give you some more. Each and every, have and hold, clear and convincing evidence, part and parcel of land, and in a deed you have the rest, residue, and remainder of your estate. And there are tons of these in legal English where you just have the same kind of repeating sounds and language. The reason I ask that is because the longer I was a practicing lawyer, the more that I found myself naturally lapsing into alliteration mm-hmm. when I spoke. And even when I would talk to a jury, I would make my mm-hmm. points with alliteration. And I just, mm-hmm. that was, that just piqued my interest when you said that, because I was thinking, why has my mind become like that? It, and that makes a ton of sense. It's, yeah, it's the things you don't really realize and until someone kind of pulls the curtain away and says, oh, and there it is. And then you suddenly recognize that that's really what sparked my interest in the podcast, going back to, you know, being an attorney and doing a podcast about the history of English. Some people say, why did you do that? Well, for me, it was because I was fascinated about the history of English, not as an academic, but just as someone who, you know, had to use the language on a day-to-day basis. And of course, a lot of my practice was dedicated to drafting legal documents. And I was constantly you know, faced with these dilemmas about which word to use. And I'm, I'm an advocate and a believer in plain English and, and trying to make the language of the law simpler so more people can access it. But you, you, you constantly deal with that struggle between those fancy Latin and French words and the simple mm-hmm. plain English. And, you know, where do you draw that line? And that's what always fascinated me. And I knew enough about the history of English to know that in most of those cases, I was choosing between a simple old English word and a, and a Latin or French word. And that's what always kind of sparked my interest. And then, as I said, you, you notice things like the alliteration, um, you know, the pairing of the words from, from different languages. And suddenly, legalese starts to make a lot more sense when you put it into its historical context. Hmm. Uh, so if you, as a lawyer, uh, we all in law school were reading cases um, from sort of English common law time, they're incredibly mm-hmm. hard to read. They're in English, not mm-hmm. in Middle English, not in Old English. They're in Modern English, and they're very difficult to follow, even though each individual word we could certainly define. Um, and it, it reminds me so much of the English language being sort of this molten lava um, or rather not molten lava, it's always molten. It never dries. It's sort of always moving a little bit. And I was thinking about this yesterday because I try to use correct grammar to my two-year-old so that he learns 
good grammar instinctively rather than having to learn it later in school, which is much, much harder, Mm -hmm. as I myself think. Um, And I think the word farther is almost dead. And the word further Further. is going to represent, you know, we've had this, um, Mm -hmm. you know, furthermore, Mm -hmm. further is sort of um, the metaphorical, Mm -hmm. non-literal length, and farther is supposed to be a mile farther to go. Right. Right. But I'm not sure we're saying farther anymore, and it kind of sounds weird. And that's typical with the language. And at some point, you just have to accept that the language, the one consistent of language is change. And that's true from the very beginning. And there's not really much you can do to stop it. But yeah, that type of thing happens all the time. And I have to admit that I'm the same way. I mean, I almost always use further. I almost never use farther. But again, that's just the 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 beauty of the language in a way. I mentioned Middle English. You know, as you go back in time, the further back in time you go, the more you need a glossary or a translator because, uh, or, or, you know, a book. I think about Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. A lot of people are familiar with that. They, they may have had to read it in school. And I suspect most people probably read a modern English translation, but there I know there are some people who do read it in the original Middle English, but if you read it in the original Middle English, what you're going to find in most cases is you'll have the, the original Middle English on one side of the page, and then on the other side, there'll be a glossary where words will have to be translated because that's simply what happens over time is words fall out of use. And of course, meanings change and many words just stop being used altogether. And so that was the case. But then some survive. Do we know why some survive and others die out of use? Like 300 years from now, and they're like, actually, there were two pronunciations of this further and farther. You know, one that April, the shores of Sota, the droughts of March, has parasit to the rota. Like, I don't know, 20% of those words we still use. Exactly, Sarah. <laughs> but then 80% that. we don't. Why'd the yeah. 20% survive? I don't know that we can say for certain. Uh, it's just the, the natural you know, process of language, especially with history. Um, you know, there are certainly external events that contribute to that. If we go back to Old English, uh, modern scholars have estimated that about 85% of the vocabulary of Old English has disappeared over time. Now, I mentioned the, the common words have survived, you know, the numbers and basic body parts, that type of thing. But all the other, you know, words of Beowulf that, that make it almost impossible to read Beowulf today or words that disappeared. Well, we can account for much of that because of the Norman conquest. The fact that French kind of pushes English out of the way for about three centuries so that only the most common, simple words survive that. And then the other thing you get once you get into the Middle English period is this flood of French and then later Latin words and Greek words into the language to the point that the language was becoming over overwhelming by the time you get into the 1400s and 1500s. And once you get into the 1500s, you get into something called the inkhorn debate, which was a, a debate among scholars of England about all these fancy words that nobody could read anymore. You would read these documents written in quote-unquote English, but half the words were these super fancy Latinate words that had eight syllables and nobody knew what they meant. And scholars started to just rail against it. What we ended up taking in the end was kind of a middle approach. A lot of those words disappeared over the course of the 1500s and 1600s because they were considered too 
fancy or highfalutin, and they just sort of disappeared. But as we know, a lot of them survived. As I said, about 60% of the vocabulary is Latinate, Latin or French. So it's just a sort of a random process, and it's hard to account for why things change the way they do and uh, to put it into any kind of simple structure. It's just the, the way the language worked, in English especially, because English has a tendency to borrow words from other languages in the way that most other languages don't tend to do that. So we're constantly absorbing words but almost inevitably, that means losing words. Because you can look at a dictionary, uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and there's a ton of words in it. As you flip through it, though, there are going to be a lot of words in there you don't recognize and never use. Well, those words are still hanging on in that dictionary, but many of them have already disappeared from the language. And eventually, some of those later revisions are going to drop those words. And unless you have you know, a, a massive 10-volume OED that captures every word ever used in the language, uh, you, you realize that the language we speak is very different from the language that was spoken four or five centuries ago, it, not just in grammar and pronunciation, but just the words we use have changed. So question I've got. And a, a portal opens in the space-time continuum. I have the, the recipe for penicillin in my hand, and I want to go back in time and save people from all those infectious diseases. When would they be able to understand me? When, how early? <laughs> how early? They're going to burn they... you as a witch, David, first of all. <laughs> well, I know. When they Assuming... understand you. Yes, you're, yes. You're I can at least, when well. can I at least plead my case? Uh, before I'm set on fire. He has a great episode about witches, also ah. worth noting. Well, I, and I have a, an episode on the Black Death as well, which also impacted <laughs> English in some interesting ways. Ooh. I guess the 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 short answer is it kind of depends on where you're going when you go back in time. Are you going to London? Or are you going to you know Northern England or the West Country? Because again, I don't think people realize how much variation there was, even in the Middle Ages. English writers were saying, people in the south of England can't understand what those people in the north of England are saying. So there's tremendous dialectical diversity at the time. But let's assume that you're going back into, say, London, which is really more the the precursor of modern English that we speak today. You would probably, you would probably have to go back to um, 1400s, maybe 1300s. I, I may be being generous here to say around the time of Chaucer. I think that here's the thing about Chaucer. If you read or hear someone reading Middle English, and that's what we're talking about here is Middle English. When you first hear it spoken, you think, what in the world is that? It sounds vaguely familiar as English, but I'm not sure it's English. Maybe it's some weird English accent or dialect. But the more you listen to it, the big difference between Middle English and Modern English was the pronunciation. The, the vowels of English shifted around in the 1400s and 1500s so that words in English became, started to be pronounced completely differently than the way they had been before. The vowel sounds changed. So what happens is, as you go back into Middle English, you have to kind of attune your ear to the different vowels. But it's relatively easy to do. And once you start hearing someone speak enough and you account for those little vowel changes it suddenly starts to make sense. So I think if I dropped you in late you know, 1300s England during the time of Chaucer, at first you would not know what anybody was saying, 
But after you were there a day or two, your ear would become accustomed to it. And I think you could probably communicate on some basic level. Um, I should also mention an interesting side note. I talked about the Vikings arriving in England, you know, late 700s, early 800s. They spoke a different language. They spoke, quote, Old Norse, which is the precursor of modern, you know, Norwegian, Swedish, Danish, and so on, the Scandinavian languages. Yet, where it was far enough back in time that it's thought that their language was close enough to Old English that they could communicate with the Anglo-Saxons without too much difficulty. So even though they spoke different languages, they could still communicate. And that's the thing. If you go back in time, the further back in time you go, the easier it is for people who speak different languages to communicate because they all came from this common source. I've read somewhere that Americans actually sound more like original, uh, when I say original English speakers, I guess I'm probably referring to more of that post-Middle English vowel shift, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe Shakespeare's time, Mm -hmm. that a true Shakespearean accent um, would sound more American, that basically British English has sort of continued to evolve in those sound shifts and were kind of frozen in 1776, 1750 or whatever. And so we're better. I'd like to say that we're better. I'm wondering if you think we're better. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we're, we're better because here's what I said earlier. Language is always changing. And this creates a myth within English, within American English, which is that American English is somehow inferior to British English. Because That's what British, upsets me. That's what right, I want to push back Because against. British English is somehow older. We think of that as the language of Shakespeare, because when we see Shakespeare performed on stage, there it's presented usually with a modern RP received pronunciation accent. Um, that, however, is not the way people spoke in early modern English during the time of Shakespeare. What has happened is that American English has evolved, but so has the English of England. And so neither language today is the language of Shakespeare. And in fact, there are people who have kind of reconstructed how Shakespeare spoke. They call it original pronunciation. And there are actually performances of Shakespeare's plays given in original pronunciation or OP. And the comment that people typically give when they hear it for the first time is that it sounds like a blend of American English, British English, and Irish English. And it's huh. exactly what it should sound like because that's the language that was spoken right before those three branches of English split. Uh, they really kind of split in the 1600s and 1700s. So again, that's what I said, if you go back in time, you should hear sort of a combination and, and that's what you hear. Now, the American features that have survived, and this is true in Ireland as well, is the distinctive R sound. So whereas we would say birth with an R in modern British English, Southern British English, they would say birth. You know, there's no real R in there. That that loss of the R sound occurred in, in England really in the 1700s after American English was established. So that's one thing that people listen. When they hear Shakespeare's plays performed in original pronunciation, they notice those very distinctive American, or you can even think of it as Irish R's in there that you wouldn't hear in modern received pronunciation. You don't hear on the stage today when it's, you know, those plays are given. But there are some other features as well. Um, we think about what's a very posh English accent. They say bath instead of bath, right? 
Well, that's a more recent development in Southern England. Back in the time of Shakespeare, people said bath, like Americans say. And like they say in the north of England, by the way, they say bath too. Bath and poth and cloth is a, a recent innovation. Uh, you think about the ends of words. We would say secretary with a distinct syllables at the end, where someone from England would say secretary. They just sort of bl- blended as tree instead of carry. Um, again, American English preserves the older pronunciation where there was distinct syllables. Southern British English has slurred it. And so, but American English has changed too. So that's why you can't say we speak the language of Shakespeare. The point is that all English dialects are constantly evolving. The most conservative English dialects, by the way, are in northern England into Scotland. So if you really wanted to hear someone speaking something akin to or closer to Middle English or at times even Old English, go into places like Newcastle, Geordie, accent there, Southern Scotland. You'll hear some of the older vowel sounds. When people say hoose and moose instead of house and mouse, that's the way people pronounced it in Old English. I've, I've got a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one, uh, two, que- two questions. One, I go back to, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm obsessed with time travel now in this conversation. So it's 1776, and I'm listening to the debates in the Continental Congress, or I'm listening to George Washington address his troops. Does Washington sound more like Anthony Hopkins or John Wayne? Well, that's a great question. We don't know because, again, we don't have recordings. And this is this is a really tricky one. The The answer is probably sounds uh, who's speaking, which which founding father is speaking. So we're talking we're talking about Washington now. Washington may have sounded more like Blackbeard. Huh. And the reason I say that I'm joking a bit, the. Let's talk about American accents for a second. Washington's from Virginia. He speaks, presumably, with a Southern American accent. The early writings in American English suggest there wasn't much of a North-South divide at the time. People Mm -hmm. who traveled around the colonies, actually what they say, Sarah, is that Americans in the colonies speak better English than the people back home in England do. These were English travelers. Because... (laughs) Because if you think about it, in England, there's this tremendous diversity of dialects from one region to the next. When people move to the colonies, they're mixing together, and the rough edges get worn away. So what you end up with is a much more standard form of English spoken in the colonies. Think about Australia. One of the things about modern Australian English is there isn't much dialectical diversity there. There's a little bit. Some people have very broad, you know, Steve Irwin kind of accent, um, some a little more standard, but, but there's not much regional variation in Australia. And it's thought that that's kind of the way it was in the American colonies based on the early reports. But there was a little bit of variation. And a lot of the early settlement, for example, in Massachusetts and Boston area came from southeastern England, which had an early non-Rhotic accent. They didn't pronounce their R's. Now, it hadn't spread across England yet. It was confined to that corner of England. That's where a lot of those early settlers in Massachusetts came from. That's part of the reason why you still have that very distinctive non-Rhotic accent in Boston today, where people say, Pak, the Ka, and Harvard Yard. It kind of comes from that. Well, in the South, a lot of the early settlers came from the West Country of England. 
And so they came from the same parts of England that produced a lot of the early sailors and a lot of the early pirates. And they had a rhotic accent. We think about pirates are, you know, that's it's, you know, it's a stereotype. <laughs> but but there is certain similarities, it's thought, between the early accents of the South and the West Country of England. And the best evidence of that is near where I grew up, which is the Outer Banks of North Carolina and the Tidewater region of Virginia, where they have a very specific accent called the hoitoiter accent, which means high tide or, or high tide. But they instead of saying I, like we would say high tide, they say hoitoid. That's the same way it's pronounced in the West Country of England. So some of these, what happened on these outer banks and these islands off the coast is the settlers came and they stayed there and they were isolated. They didn't communicate with the mainland very much. So some of their dialect features, you want to talk about Elizabethan English, that's about as close as you're going to get is some of these accents along the Outer Banks because they were settled in the 1600s and 1700s and remained largely isolated. And you can hear dialect features today. In fact, some people think that the dialect of, of the Outer Banks and Tidewater region is, is just really just a slight variation of the West Country accent. And some linguists don't even really consider it American English. They consider it the only American dialect or dialect spoken in America that's not really American English. It's really an offshoot of British English. Okay. I can't believe we're out of time. This is awful. <laughs> um, last legal thoughts or nuggets for us before we let you go. Well, I don't have a lot. I mean, I will say that in the, the podcast that I do is chronological, and I am currently in the mid to late 1500s. So I'm, I'm just now in the early modern English period, and uh, I am, am getting ready to tackle Shakespeare, which is going to be one of the most challenging parts of the podcast series. But one of the recurring themes of the podcast that, that keeps coming up is the way that legal English was shaped by the changes that I talk about. It's something that I've touched on from time to time. And uh, I'm going to continue to do that as I move forward. And so, uh, you know, other than than just, you know, encouraging your listeners to check it out, it's a lot. I've been doing it 10 years. There are 160 episodes, I know. But I think there are bonus episodes. In fact, I recently did a series of bonus episodes. This is my my Patreon, I should note, uh, on Legal English because uh, I had enough, a lot of people, a lot of listeners were requesting more information on that. But, you know, it's just something that I, I think it's a fascinating topic. The way I present it is sort of half history, half English. So if you mm -hmm. find the English part boring, maybe the history part will keep you interested. If you find the you know, the other way around. If you find the history boring, maybe the language will keep you interested. But it's always a balance in the podcast. And uh, I would in invite and encourage your listeners to check it out if, if they think they would find it interesting. Uh, well, at least one person here finds it to be <laughs> no, the, two, most, two. the most <laughs> interesting. And I think you do balance the history and the language so perfectly. And telling, I don't know, I, I sort of explain it to people as, telling the history of uh, the world to some extent through language, which is really, really fun. That's the idea. Ultimately, I call it the history of English, but it's really um, kind of the history of the, the people who spoke the English language and the precursors of the English language. And it's rooted in the basic idea 
that the, there's a fundamental connection between language and culture and history. The language we speak reflects the history that we, we have. And, and English is a wonderful language because it's kind of a time capsule. It captures you know, so many different you know, words from so many different periods of English. And the way we pronounce words reflects the way they were pronounced when they were borrowed in. And that's something that I, you know, I enjoy exploring in the podcast. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. It's a lot. But I hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll, you'll continue to listen and make it all the way through Shakespeare with, with me and everybody else. How many Shakespeare episodes are we going to get? Uh, I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> it, it, could be, it could be one or two, and I would make half my audience angry if I only did two episodes. It could be 20, and I'd make the other half angry for doing 20 episodes. So it'll be somewhere in between. We'll see how it goes. I need this to start lingering because, as you said, we're already in the late 1500s. At some point, you run into the present. I don't want to contemplate what happens then. I can't not have this as part of my life. So slow down, Kevin. I will. Too fast. I'll take my time. I've gone from every other week to once a month. So maybe I'll just start... uh, I'll start doing it <laughs> once a year or something. No, no, no. That's not what I meant. That's not at all what I meant. That's the wrong slowdown. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kevin. Deeply appreciate you coming on. That was fascinating stuff. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. We'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today, Aura. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on your childhood memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. And to be clear, every mom in my life has this frame. Every mom I've ever heard of has this frame. This is my go-to gift. My parents love it. I upload photos all the time. I'm just like bored watching TV at the end of the night. I'll hop on the app and put up the photos from the day. It's really easy. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code advisory at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.